Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. A spirited debate on public versus private health care. More noise about building homes on the greenbelt. Canadians are preparing for a recession. And from Hollywood to Daytona? The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. A lot of people out there, they want to have the endless debates about who should provide care. All I care about, all Minister Jones cares about, all our government cares about, is that you get the care you need quickly and safely. More surgeries, shorter wait times, all paid for by OHIP. Now you heard it here live on 900 CHML. Premier Doug Ford announcing changes to health care in this province where some of the backlog surgeries will go to private clinics, MRIs, CT scans and the like. And also promising that your OHIP card and not your credit card will be all you need. But it is is as simple as that. Dr. Amit Arya is a palliative care physician and assistant clinical professor at McMaster University, also a board member of the Canadian Doctors for Medicare, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. Arya, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me. uh, Thanks for coming on. You've been very vocal on social media. Share your thoughts about this plan with our listeners. Yeah, so, I mean, I definitely agree with the government that something needs to be done at this point in time uh, with our entire healthcare system, with is in crisis, with improving, uh, you know, surgical backlogs. You know, where I disagree is how we are going to improve the healthcare system. And fundamentally, um, you know, the evidence is actually quite clear. We have a lot of data showing us that uh, outsourcing healthcare using our public taxpayer dollars um, to fund for-profit corporations to provide healthcare, in this case, Surgical services, for example, results in poorer outcomes for patients and also um, is worse for the taxpayer. So that is fundamentally where we disagree. And I think that we need to focus on solutions, focused on uh, building capacity in our public hospital system and our, and not-for-profit um, you know, surgical centres as well. Some people are saying this $18 million that is being spent on this private plan, at least at the, the, the first step of it, many are saying that why not just put this money and more into the public system and, and critics of that will say, well, we've been doing this public system for a while and we've, we've, hit a, we've hit a roadblock here. The system has to change. What do you say to that? Yeah, so I don't agree that, the, you know, the government has done enough to actually improve our public system. And to be very honest, Rick, you know, my main concern with the public, with, you know, with the government's announcement is around labor. So really, there's nothing in the announcement that, you know, protects staffing uh, from not being pulled away from our already understaffed public system, which is undoubtedly struggling. Staff are extremely burnt out. So I'm very, very worried that staff are going to be pulled away to work in for-profit private surgical centers, for example, where, you know, they, they will have a better lifestyle. You know, they'll better have, you know, they'll probably be working eight to four type of hours. They won't have to do on call. And that will once again come at the expense of our public healthcare system. So I don't think it's fair that we have to fix surgical backlogs once again at the expense of our public healthcare system. We heard Health Minister Sylvia Jones speak to that point yesterday saying, ah, there's enough healthcare workers in this province. Uh, there, you know, some might go to the private uh, uh, sector, but we'll be fine in the public sector. So you disagree? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think we've had 
dire staffing shortages, to be very honest, in our hospitals, in home care, and in long-term care. And this is something that the government has not admitted to for a long time. Uh, you know, in fact, the, you know, there's data from, you know, the RNAO, um, the, you know, the organization which represents registered nurses, uh, registered practical nurses, that shows that many nurses are leaving the healthcare system, and those that remain in the healthcare system and have their license are leaving frontline care for other other sort of um, jobs within the system, such as administrative jobs. And that's something that is very serious. And, you know, the government is doing something to recruit nurses. They're not doing enough, but they are doing something, and they, and they do deserve some credit for that. But the problem is really on the retainment side, where we have, in, some, in, in, in many circumstances, a revolving door of health workers, where we hire health workers who come in, and then they leave. Uh, for other jobs, or sometimes they leave healthcare altogether. And I'm worried that, you know, upscaling private for profit surgical centers will actually further, uh, you know, health workers leaving the public healthcare system. We have a couple more minutes with Dr. Amit Arya, palliative care physician and assistant clinical professor at McMaster University, talking about Ontario's new private public healthcare plan. You tweeted yesterday, public solutions to reduce surgical wait times include creating centralized wait lists and extending OR times to evenings and weekends. How easily can this be done? And maybe more importantly, would patients be receptive to it? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think, uh, I mean, let's make one thing clear. We have a, you know, an excellent um, mechanism to provide oversight for quality of care in um, in our public hospitals. Um, and we don't have that same oversight in for-profit uh, surgical centers where often there's also upselling. So it would actually be better for patients if they received care, once again, in a not-for-profit surgical center, which also has that regulatory oversight or a, um, you know, or a public hospital. And I think, you know, one of the easiest examples that I did provide was around um, creating centralized single entry wait lists for referrals. So what this means is that often when your primary care provider is making a referral for you in surgery, they have no idea about how long that particular surgeon's wait time might be. But what this means is they, you, that you will automatically be referred to someone who has the lowest wait time. And this will lead to better equity in the system and dramatically um, improve surgical wait times. Um, another sort of quite, I think, simple mechanism which can be provided would mean that, you know, it's something called surgical smoothing. And I didn't have all the charts to put this in one tweet, but basically what it means is you can separate planned and unplanned surgeries into different operating room streams. So there are many different ways to find efficiencies within our public healthcare system. And right now we actually have ORs in our hospitals, which generally lie empty except for emergency surgeries after hours and on weekends. So if we had more staff, we could extend OR times and allow many people who are waiting for surgeries uh, in all of our hospitals, you know, to get, you know, to get those surgeries in a timely fashion. And that would not come at the expense of our public health care system. Those are very solid solutions. Dr. Arya, thank you for your time today. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks so much, Rick. That is Dr. Amit Arya, palliative care physician, an assistant clinical professor at McMaster University and a board member of Canadian Doctors for Medicare. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. More talk on health care. Ontarians will always access health care with their OHIP card, never their credit card. Our goal is simple. Whether it's an emergency in the middle of the night or a problem that's been bothering you for years, no matter where you live, we want to connect you to more convenient care closer to home. Well, you heard the news yesterday right here on 900 CHML. You are 
uh, still digesting the ramifications and the impact of this new private slash public health care plan. What does it mean for you listening right now? If you need a hip replacement surgery or a cataract surgery or you need a CT scan, Colleen Flood is a professor at the University of Ottawa, University Research Chair in Health Law and Policy and a Public Health Law Expert, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Colleen, good morning. Good morning, Rick. Your area of expertise includes public-private financing of healthcare systems and, and healthcare reform. What do you make of what Ontario is doing? Well, like everybody, I'm um, you know, happy to... Uh, see that there's some movement to try to attend to uh, wait times. Um, I think, you know, as you said, lots of folks are waiting far too long for care. But um, my concern is that uh, this is not the right approach right now. Um, We have so many people without uh, family doctors. We have crowded ER rooms. You know, we have so many needs for resources right at the moment you know, this this is a huge investment into the potentially the building of uh, for-profit facilities. And, you know, that'll help some of the folks, uh, hopefully, who are waiting for cataract surgeries and so on right now, but not the people who can't even get access to get onto a wait list because they don't have access to a family doctor. And it's not re- going to help the crowding of emergency rooms, which is, you know, a, a real priority right now. Some critics are saying this is going to be the end of universal health care in Ontario. Do you agree or is that an overstatement? Well, I, I like to believe that uh, the premier, uh, you know, is telling us the truth when he says that it is not his plan at all to um, have out of payment, uh, out of pocket payment or private insurance cover these services. But certainly where you have the rise of uh, for-profit clinics, they are likely to try to push the envelope. They're not likely to be content with uh, funding only from the public insurer. So they will push and push to try to expand to, you know, create more of a two-tier system than we have. So that's the risk. I mean, we, we always have a lot of private delivery inside public healthcare systems, like when you go, if you have a family doctor, you know, they they operate on a for-profit basis, but it's the doctor, him or herself, they've been trained for years, you know, they have an ethical code. It's a bit of a different kind of a gig when they're working for, you know, a private for-profit corporation whose um, allegiance has to be to their shareholders and to returning a profit. So, you know, when you get into that situation, you, you have to be concerned about the fact that the quality of the care that you're receiving might not be what it should be. And that as a patient, it might be actually really hard to know that, you know, if you're getting a, a an MRI or a CT scan and it's not being done properly, I mean, you're really not going to know that and perhaps until it's uh, done too late. So, so those are the concerns one has once you inject for-profit delivery into the system, even if it is publicly funded. Pre- and we saw a bit of this, you know, with long-term care homes. Well, not a bit of this. Um, you know, it's just a, a travesty how the for-profit long-term care homes treated their residents. And, and unfortunately, you know, that's where we saw most of the deaths and so on was in those for-profit homes. And sadly, our our government 
um, wasn't regulating them properly. They weren't being inspected um, regularly like they had been in the past. So, you know, that's that's the concern. Are we going to, is the government actually going to have, you know, the kahunas really to regulate um, the for-profit providers properly Will they be just happy enough that they're receiving public funding? We have a couple more minutes here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML with Colleen Flood, a public health law expert and a professor at the University of Ottawa. As we discuss this private versus public health care plan uh, from the Ford government, uh, the premier made it a point a couple of times yesterday saying that uh, you're going to use your OHIP card, not a credit card. But years from now, is it going to cost us more in the end to fund this private part of this plan? Well, that depends. I mean, if if the you know the end goal is that people will actually be paying out of pocket and we have a larger role for private insurance, uh, then yes, we will. We will end up paying higher prices. Prices will get pushed up just to keep the labor, so the labor, I mean the nurses and so on, in the public hospitals, we will have to pay more to keep them. Otherwise, we'll have, you know, a very second-class kind of service in public hospitals. So around the world where you see um, public finance combined with private finance, all other things being equal, what you see is prices going up and we end up spending more. But, you know, as we, as you mentioned, Rick, he, he is saying at the moment uh, that the plan is uh, no private finance. Everyone is being, um, everyone will uh, just be covered by OHIP. Um, the, you know, the facilities themselves, of course, though, will also have to be covered by OHIP. So it's not just the doctor's billing. So these independent clinics uh, will be, you know, submitting an invoice to the government to cover the cost of keeping the hydro on, the cleaning, the nursing staff, all of that kind of business. So, you know, whether that is more efficient than investing in public hospitals, you know, I think that's going to have to come out from economic modeling. And I think we just may have lost uh, Miss Colleen Flood. Uh, Colleen, if you can hear me, thanks for joining us today. And uh, we will chat with you down the road. Colleen Flood is a professor at the University of Ottawa, a university research chair in health law and policy, a public health law experts. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Poll question of the day, and we're talking about it now here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. What do you think of the Ford government's private public health care plan for Ontario? Love it or hate it? Send me a text, 905-645-3221. You can also send me an email, rick at 900chml.com. i got a couple of texts that I'm going to get to. But before that, we have Butch, who's called into the program. Butch, good morning. How are you? Hey, good morning. I am well. What are your thoughts on this private public plan? Yeah, well, uh, it's in the details, and they haven't been released yet. Uh, What the fee schedule will be. like, yeah, your OHIP, is the government going to top up the uh, private sector? Because we all know they surcharge. They charge more than OHIP. That's why they're private. They're in it for profit. Um, so uh, if they're going to work at OHIP rates, that is wonderful. But if they're going to get topped up by the government, 
to for their surcharges, whatever they might be. And like uh, your uh, your uh, last guest there, uh, Colleen from Ottawa, uh, she uh, alluded to it with the uh, maintenance, the electricity, the custodian, and all of that stuff. Um, she alluded to it. But uh, if it's going to be the same rate as the hospitals, as the public service, then that is wonderful. If it's going to be surcharged and they will top up their money, and that will definitely promote migration from the public health to the private sector. I would agree with that. Butch, I really appreciate your call. Thanks for coming in. Enjoy your day. Okay, and yourself. Thank you very much. That's uh, Bush call, Butch calling in to give uh, his thoughts on this private versus public plan. I, I said this earlier on the show. I love it and I hate it. I love the fact that the government's trying something, right? We have these long wait lists. Let's get people off these wait lists and get them into their procedures and surgeries, whether it's CT scans, MRIs, colonoscopies, cataracts, or whatever the case is, knee hip replacement. Let's get them off the waiting list. But part of me also hates it, and a little bit more of me hates it because we are going to see, I think, at some point down the line, and Butch kind of alluded to this, we're going to pay a little bit more because there's going to be a point in time where these private clinics, these private entities say, all right, we can deliver this service, but, you know, we have to answer to our investors. They want to see a little bit more ROI. We have to charge a little bit more, at least charge the government a little bit more, which means they're charging us a little bit more. I got a text from Doug from Waterdown. Mother-in-law had cataract surgery at Joe Brand Hospital in Burlington in October 2020. Uh, They asked her if she wanted to upgrade lens for $225, which she agreed to. And that was at the hospital. So stop complaining about private clinics asking for upgrade or upcharging. It's all the same. Love to hear your thoughts. Doug, you're bang on. This happens in hospital settings as well. The issue is you're probably not, or your mother-in-law is probably not going to be pushed at least as hard in a hospital setting as they would in a private clinic. They're in the business of making money. And certainly hospital, hey, if you want to pay them 225 bucks, they'll take it. The ophthalmologist will certainly take that. Mike from Hamilton, I'm against it. The healthcare proposal is not good enough. What do you think? 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell phone. You can send me an email, rick at 900chml. Here's a bit more of what the Premier had to say yesterday on this new private-slash-public plan. We need to be bold. We need to be innovative. We need to be creative. We need to look to other provinces and countries to see what they do differently and borrow the best ideas. We also need to be clear. Ontarians will always access health care with their OHIP card, never their credit card. Uh, Number one, I'll give the credit to the government for trying to do something new. And I said that before. But number two, bold and creative? Uh, Not so much. I mean, this is being done in places like Germany and Denmark, South Africa, which is a disaster there. And it's just not working. There are big holes in the system. Mike's called in a good morning, Hamilton. Mike, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. You got about a minute? Lay your thoughts on me and our listeners. Um, I'm up in the air about the whole idea but what has been bothering me is i've heard all morning long and even last night listening to the station all these people saying that uh you know by going to a private uh a privately run uh clinic or whatever that you're going to get substandard care 
And I can't understand how that's the case when these people went to the same schools all the hospital doctors and nurses went to, Mm -hmm. as well as the fact that, you know, a lot of the nurses that have left uh, the, uh, the public system have gone to private systems, right? And then on top of that, these clinics, they're specialists. So I don't understand why people are saying that you're going to be getting substandard care. I think the, you might get substandard care at places like hospitals and other public uh, health care settings because those people are going to follow the money of the private health clinics because they want to get paid more, they want to work less hours, and the public system is going to suffer. Uh, and that makes perfect sense, and that's a, that's a great explanation. But what I've been hearing is that people are are saying that you're going to get substandard care at the private clinic. No, oh, you're, you're going to get, is, yeah, you're going to get the same amount of care. You might spend a little bit more money. Mike, I got to go. I appreciate your call. Right. Have a fantastic day. You too. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, great calls, great tweets as well, or great texts. We're going to continue this conversation for the next few days. You can be rest assured that we'll talk about uh, this important issue for all Ontarians. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Unequivocally, we won't touch the green belt. Uh, unlike other governments that don't listen to people, I've heard it loud and clear. People don't want me touching the green belt. We won't touch the green belt. We'll figure out. Uh, how to clean up this housing mess and this housing crisis that we're facing in a different fashion. But all my friends, I listen to you. You don't want me touching the green belt. We won't touch the green belt. By the way, this is the same guy who is saying you're not going to use your credit cards, but you'll use your OHIP card in private clinics, just to be clear. Uh, Opposition leaders in Ontario want the Auditor General to look into Bill 23 and plans to develop and build homes on the Green Belts. We're going to discuss this for the next few minutes with Mike Schreiner, the leader of the Ontario Green Party, who joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Mike, welcome back to the show. Hey, good morning, Rick. Always a pleasure to be on. We know that the OPP is kind of sniffing around this whole Green Belts developer, who knows what happened before the lands opened kind of deal, but you want the Auditor General to look at this too. Yeah, well, I think we need to have the Integrity Commissioner look at it the Auditor General look at it and the OPP look at it because these shady land deals just don't pass the smell test. I mean, who spends uh, millions of dollars buying land that you can't develop, uh, especially when the premier, and we've documented that the premier and the housing minister uh, around 20 times have explicitly said, hey, we're going to not develop the green belt. I'm not going to touch the green belt. And then suddenly the premier says, hey, we have to touch the green belt. And a handful of land speculators are going to turn millions into billions. And the rest of us are going to pay the price for that. And that's exactly why it needs to be investigated. Yesterday on the show, we spoke with Flambroke Lambrook PCMPP Donna Skelly. And she said that development charges are only going to be eliminated or waived for subsidized housing or those built by not-for-profit agencies. We also spoke with the mayor of Hamilton, Andrea Horvath, who said that the government has been pretty vague on that stipulation. What are you hearing about development charges? Well, the government has been extremely vague on what they're going to do with development charges. I mean, I would be fine with waiving development charges for nonprofit and co-op deeply affordable housing, especially if the provincial government stepped in and said, hey, we're going to cover those infrastructure costs so we don't download that cost on the municipalities and municipal property taxpayers. But the government hasn't been clear about that. I mean, it's unclear 
what their definition of affordable actually is and if it's really affordable and whether this is going to uh, include purpose-built rental units, which may or may not be affordable. The bottom line is people's property taxes uh, are going to go up uh, because the government hasn't stepped in and said, you know what? We, the province, who has more fiscal capacity than municipalities, are going to step in and make sure we fund the infrastructure municipalities need in order to build uh, housing that people can afford. You know, I was I was against opening up the Greenbelt lands, but I, I, I could have stomached this. Hey, we're going to open up some of the Greenbelt lands only for not-for-profit or subsidized or affordable housing. Yeah, that's not what's going to happen, no. uh, Rick. I mean, essentially what the government is proposing is is we're going to build uh, billion-dollar highways to million-dollar homes that people can't afford. And that's going to make life less affordable for people because these long, expensive commutes are not affordable for families. And it's going to put more pressure on municipalities because the cost of servicing sprawl, like think about it. More roads, more sewer lines, more water main lines, more hydro lines spread out over a long distance is more expensive for people. So this this plan, this scheme that the government has, it is going to benefit a handful of land speculators who are going to make huge windfall profits at the expense of the rest of us. And the rest of us are going to have less affordable lives. And that Greenbelt land was protected for a reason. That's the farmland that feeds us, the wetlands and green space that clean our drinking water and protect us from extreme weather events like flooding. We're all going to pay the price for this, and it's not even going to address the housing affordability crisis. Mike, it's it's. Uh, I only got about 30 seconds, but I have to ask you about this private public health care plan. Your thoughts on it? Well, you know what? Somebody who promised that they're not going to open the Greenbelt for development now is opening the Greenbelt development. You know, I just don't trust Doug Ford when he says, hey, you're not going to be paying uh, for the for this uh, with a credit card, especially when he will not guarantee that these private clinics are, uh, are not going to be able to upsell you higher cost services that you will be paying for with your credit card. Mike, appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, hey, anytime, Rick. That is Mike Schreiner, leader of the Ontario Green Party. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Bank of Canada surveys are showing more than 70% of Canadian consumers and two-thirds of businesses believe at some point here in 2023, we'll be talking more and more about the R word because we'll be in a recession. What's the likelihood of that? Let's ask our good friend, Marvin Ryder, professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University, who joins us now. Marvin, good morning. Good morning. So more and more businesses are expecting a recession, uh, obviously pointing to, you know, reduced spending, slower sales, interest rates obviously having an impact in that. But these surveys indicate that these businesses are expecting a mild recession this year. What, what does a mild recession look like? <laughs> what does a mild recession look like? Well... <laughs> Let's go back to the technical definition of a recession. That's two consecutive quarters where our economy shrinks. Uh, We measure how much the economy grows or shrinks to the tenth of a percent. Uh, So I think it's quite possible that we might see two consecutive quarters in which the economy shrinks 0.1% or 0.2%. As long as there's two consecutive quarters, technically we're in a recession but first, it's not terribly deep. It's just the smallest amount of shrinkage possible. And then the other thing is that usually a company in a recession, along with economic activity being a little slower, is unemployment. We just saw the numbers here, I guess it was about a week ago, 
for the month of December, Canada added 100,000 jobs in the month of December. Unemployment's running at around 5%. The lowest we've ever had is 4.9%. So again, we've got full employment and we have a little over 900,000 jobs that companies want to hire for and they can't find people to fill those jobs. That would be highly unusual to have a recession and yet at the same time to have full employment. So this is why I think people are saying, I'm bracing myself for the inevitable. I think it's a 50-50 chance that we do hit a recession, but we also think it'll be relatively mild. We won't last very long. It might only last a quarter or two, and then we'll get past it, and then we'll be back to the other side. And it's kind of like COVID. I think most people just wish we were already through it, Instead, we're bracing ourselves for what might happen. In in regards to the job numbers that you just touched on, 104,000 jobs created in December, how does that factor into forecasting when a recession might hit? Because we're still adding people to payrolls. Correct. So let me just say, I'm going to fast forward here to this time next month. When we get the jobs data for January, I am expecting to see us lose jobs. I'm expecting to see a net loss. Now, this has actually nothing to do with the recession. It has to do with cyclical hiring practices. We normally bring in extra workers. Retail brings in extra workers. Hospitality brings in extra workers to get through the Christmas season. And now that we're into the middle of January, okay, those workers are let go. So we're going to see a a natural release of some of those workers, and that will be negative. Uh, But for, for people who are watching this who don't realize that, the minute you hear that we might have a, a slight bump up in unemployment this month, people are going to start panicking. And so what, what you really need to do, I think, and I hate to say it to you like this, I think you need to take a little news holiday. You, as you and I chat, we talk about these things, and every month they read something else. I think people are, are starting to become a self-fulfilling prophecy because they hear all the negative news they may actually be causing a recession in and of themselves. And the best thing you can do, keep your financial house in order, but maybe don't pay attention to every last little tiny announcement. Uh, You might deal with it all much better. Marvin Ryder is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Mr. Ryder is a professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University, and we're talking about what many believe will be a recession at some point in 2023. Uh, These surveys from the Bank of Canada also show that consumers in this country have trimmed their discretionary spending, obviously with inflation where it is and the cost of living and the groceries obviously uh, going through the roof. They're they're spending their they're trimming their spending on things like travel and accommodation is the already battered and beleaguered travel industry uh, in the eye of the recession storm. Yeah, so that's a that's a really good question. And I need to go back through this survey, how much of this is people talking about what they are doing versus how much of this is what they are planning to do? It's a bit like uh, the Christmas that just passed. Back in October, we asked people, how are they going to handle the Christmas season? And oh, I'm going to cut back. I'm not going to blow the budget. I'm not going to run up big debts. And yet what we found, generally speaking, was that consumer spending continued as it was. So uh, it's a bit of asking me what I'm going to do when I'm not really sure what I'm going to do. (laughs) As from what I can see, Canadians are still traveling. The tourism industry is still strong. Uh, But again, it's wise as you potentially are going into a recession to look at your spending and say, do I need to spend every last nickel in these ways? Similarly, if you talk about the high price of groceries, uh, I think, again, it's practical to say, well, maybe I'm not going to eat quite as much beef. I'll eat more chicken or I'll eat more pork and I'll just change my buying habits a little bit. As long as we personally don't go into a deep freeze, 
uh, will be fine. But it is important to get your house in order, keep your debt levels to something that you can manage, especially if there's some turbulence in the economy. But I just don't think it's going to be deep turbulence. And therefore, I don't think people have to take dramatic actions. Uh, maybe if you were thinking of putting up a new fence, maybe wait a couple of months for that. Otherwise, I, I think we're going to get through this not too badly. Last one for you. we got about a minute. If, this is a big if, if inflation does not subside, some are suggesting that we could have a deeper recession in 2024. What are the odds of that? Yeah. So uh, why is that? The Bank of Canada is trying to slow the economy through these higher interest rates. And what a year we had just in 2022. We went from 0.25% from the Bank of Canada rate to 4.25%. That's the biggest increase in Canadian history. The bank was signaling that if that dramatic action reduced inflation, they wouldn't be doing more interest rate hikes. The next chance to uh, hike the interest rate occurs next Wednesday. Uh, and so the question is, especially with today's number, today's release, is inflation coming down? We think the December uh, inflation number is going to be around 6.2, 6.3%. It was 6.8%. Boy, a half point drop in inflation would be really welcome. And maybe that would continue. But if the inflation stays high, guess what? The Bank of Canada is going to keep raising those interest rates. And rather than just cooling the economy, the odds go up that it'll put it in a skid and maybe even cause it to, to break like a recession altogether. So I would like to hope that the data is starting to go in the right direction and we won't need these stronger actions. And therefore, we can avoid this deeper recession that might happen in a year's time. We're keeping our fingers crossed on that. Marvin, always appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us today. Glad to be with you, Rick. Marvin Ryder is a professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. First, he was Malcolm in the middle, and now Frankie Muniz is becoming a race car driver. Yeah, the, the Hollywood actor has announced that he's competing as a full-time race car driver in the Arca Menard series. It's a, a minor league of NASCAR, if you will. What do we think about this? Eric Thomas is the host of Raceline Radio. You can hear it Sundays at 8 p.m. right here on 900 CHML. E.T., good morning. How are you? Good morning, uh, RZ. Nice to be on with you. And I, what's the limitation on saying Happy New Year? I mean, I haven't had a chance to say that to you. But, you know, we're past the middle of the month. Past the middle of the month. I, th I think we've crossed the finish line on that. <laughs> okay. <All right. laughs> what's your anyway. reaction to this Frankie Muniz story? Well, it's interesting because this has a long history, really. And he's 37 now, and most guys who are starting, as you say, in the, in the, in the NASCAR Arca Menard series. Menards, of course, is the Home Improvement Center. That's the sponsor of the series. That's the entry level uh, for NASCAR stock car racing. And it's a touring series. They, they do uh, travel all over the U.S. They don't do any racing in Canada. A few Canadians have, have been in the series from time to time. He's, he's taken a bit of a turn in his racing career because besides being, as you said, Malcolm in the Middle, also that the movie agent Cody Banks, back in the early 2000s, he had this idea that, well, he really liked racing for one thing and thought he might want to try it himself, not necessarily become a professional at it, maybe just do it as a lark to see if he could do it and have some fun with it because the sport can be an awful lot of fun. It, it can be potentially dangerous. We've talked about this before and things like that. But in 2001, he drove the pace car at the Daytona 500, and that's that faithful race where we lost Dale Earnhardt in that wreck in the last lap. But he got close to Dale, and Dale signed his jacket and said, you know your show, Malcolm in the Middle East, is one of my favorites. It, it drew me and my daughter Kelly closer together, which was really, really cool. And at that time, he sort of left stock car racing behind. And in the and around 2004, he was in the Toyota Celebrity Race at the Long Beach Grand Prix in an open-wheel Formula car, Formula 1600 car. 
and he got the bug a little bit, but the bite was a bit deeper, I suppose. And in 2008, he was in the old Atlantic series, which was on the IndyCar development ladder. And there's a Canadian connection to this Muniz story because his coach was Lee Bentham, the Canadian, a driver who was involved with David Empringham and, and the rest of that, that crew that we follow closely on Raceline uh, in the Atlantic Series. And he was bent on a formula career in open wheel. Then he kind of got away from television. Malcolm in the Middle went away, played drums in a band for a while and toured that. And then he got sort of back into it. Uh, his last full-time season in, in open wheel cars was in 2009, but he had a crash a bad one. He broke an ankle, broke his back, had he broke his hand, and he and he sort of took a a leave from it. And then he sort of said, you know what? I've I've always wanted to do this. Is is he, he got married, had a son, and he said, you know what? I I think I really want to focus on this racing thing. So here he is. He's going to jump in full time with with. Uh, with uh, with Rhett Jones and jump into the Menard series and take it from open wheel formula cars to stock cars at the age of 37. So the love of the game <laughs> never really went away. But he joins a list. Uh, you probably got questions there. And I apologize for running on here, but <laughs> they, you know, as I normally do. Uh, but they, they joins a list of other notables who have dabbled in the sport. The most famous one certainly was Paul Newman. Mm-hmm. We know what what a legendary actor he was. But he raced himself, and he was racing cars at the age of 80, and he was darn good at it, too, but, of course, well-known for his co-ownership of an IndyCar team with Carl Haas. Patrick Dempsey, Gray's Anatomy fame, was a, was a terrific sports car racer. Marty Robbins, the country music star, the, the late Marty Robbins, drove NASCAR stock cars in the 60s through the 80s, and the surprise of TV Tommy Ivo, drag raced, of course, he was on a, a number of, of uh, TV shows in the 60s, raced regularly at uh, Dragway Park in Cayuga, not far from where we are. And uh, and the uh, surprising one was Dick Smothers, the Smothers Brothers. I'm aging myself here. <laughs> you remember in the 60s and 70s, oh, yeah. the you know, Smothers Brothers, Tommy was the funny guy. Dick Smothers was the bass player, the big upright bass player, who was the straight guy mm-hmm. in their stand-up act. He was a driver of talent as well. <laughs> so there's a list of people that, that Frankie Muniz can join here that dabble in TV, dabble with, you know, their main career is, is television and film. And also dabble in racing too. Yeah. So it's an interesting story all the way around. We got about two and a half minutes. I want to ask you, what does it? T- what would it take for a guy like this who has a bit of a, a racing background? Obviously, he has some talent, but sure. for him to go from the Menard series to, you know, the the NASCAR Top Flight series uh, with the big boys, I mean, that's yeah. going to take some work. Well, it's going to take some work, and and that's the reason why I don't really believe at any point in this. He's got any aspirations to graduate up to what would be the Xfinity series mm-hmm. or the Truck series, and 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 then of course in Cup in 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 the in the Cup series, which is the top rung of it at the age of thirty-seven. Most guys who are trying to break into this, Rick, start this as they're barely into their teens. They normally race locally, you know, in late models and things like that when they're just barely into their teens, and sometimes even before they're they're legally allowed to drive on the street, but they can drive on the racetrack and get their license. They start that in their very very early teens. Not when they're almost forty, you know. So I mean, that's that's a bit of a different approach that that Frankie's doing. I think he's he's doing it just to prove to himself that he can. It's a bit of a different tributary from open wheel formula cars, where you're racing on streets and roads. This is only on ovals. It's it's in a stock car racing thing, just to to, to you know get that little bug out of himself if he can, because he's a father now and he's got other responsibilities. But you know, he's I don't know whether he's pointed in the upper part of it as where he want to go. Maybe somebody will give him a ride. Maybe he'll. he'll turn out to be very, very good, and that would be excellent. But normally you're starting in your teens, not when you're almost 40. Yeah, Eric, we've got to go. Appreciate your time today, and uh, we'll be listening Sundays at 8 on CHML for Raceline Radio.
Always love being on with you, Rick. We'll do some more whenever you need to. Have a good one. Eric Thomas, the host of Raceline Radio. Again, you can hear it Sunday nights at 8 right here on CHML. Frankie Munoz's first race in the Arkham Menard Series is going to happen at Daytona, February 18th, uh, in uh, just a few weeks' time. One of, the, one of the things that I thought about was, you know, usually it's athletes who become actors, uh, not actors becoming athletes. You know, there's, there's some of them around. They usually become presidents, <laughs> to be honest. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode and make sure you rate and review.